So let's begin with prayer for our third part of our session on Babylon and the New Jerusalem. Let's bow our heads. Gracious Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to think about you and your ways, and particularly in light of ancient Babylon, which plays a central role in Revelation. And we ask that you will guide our minds and open our minds to be able to understand and grasp the truths that we can understand and visualize as a result of studying these things. Bless us and guide us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is part three of Babylon, the New Jerusalem, and what we're dealing with are aspects of worship in those two uh, nations. I'm going to begin with the sacrificial system, and I'm going to be going over the sacrificial system in the Hebrew Bible first, because there's a lot of things that we don't always take into consideration when we talk about the sacrificial system. So far as I know, there's no text in the Bible where it specifically states that God initiated or commanded that people do sacrifices. There's possible allusions, but there's no direct commands. The reference in Genesis 3.21 to God clothing the man and the woman, uh, literally tunics of skin, may allude to the sacrifice of an animal and has historically been taken as such. I have a friend who has tried to convince me that tunics of skin meant actual skin on the body, that we were originally created with spiritual bodies and therefore didn't have skin. I would need a little more evidence to to go with that, but I wanted to put that out there uh, maybe for discussion later. Some note that Abel offered an animal as a minka instead of a burnt offering or sin offering and take it as evidence that Abel didn't slay the animal. However, Genesis 4.4 states clearly that Abel brought their fat portions. Therefore, the text bears out that he slew the animal. There's no other way you could take out fat portions. Abraham builds altars to Yahweh in Genesis 12, 7, 13, 4, 22, 9, and verse 13. So there's an awareness of sacrifices going on, just not a clear definitive statement as to how that began. In Leviticus, the laws regarding the offerings do not begin with you must sacrifice animals, but rather when any of you bring an offering, or you can translate that if any of you brings an offering. And the book of Hebrews seems to assume that the sacrifices were commanded by God, and I give you some references there that you might want to jot down for later use. So then we come to sacrifices in the Psalms and the prophets. And you may wonder why I'm including 1 Samuel in, as one of the prophets, but uh, in the Hebrew canon, the first, uh, actually Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, are part of the are the part of the canon called the prophets. Psalm forty, verse six says, "You have given me ears; you don't find pleasure in sacrifice and offering. You don't ask me for whole burnt offerings or sin offerings." Psalm 50, verses 7 to 15, basically points out that God doesn't drink sacrificial blood. 1 Samuel 15, 22 says to obey is better than sacrifice. 
in Isaiah 1, 11 to 17, God has had it with burnt offerings. He doesn't want animal blood. He orders worthless offerings stopped. He wants people to wash their blood-stained hands, stop their evil deeds, and seek justice. In Jeremiah 6.20, it states, Your burnt offerings won't be acceptable, and your sacrifices won't buy God off. In Hosea 6.6, God desires kindness, not sacrifice, and knowledge of him more than burnt offering. In Amos 5.22, God isn't pleased with offerings and gifts of food. He won't even look at your fat-filled offerings. Micah 6, 6 to 8 asks, what does God want? Burnt offerings, yearly calves, thousands of rams, rivers of oil, my firstborn child. The conclusion is, he's shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Then in a very startling passage, Jeremiah 7, 21 to 23 says this, is what the Lord of heavenly forces, the God of Israel, says. Add your entirely burned offerings to your sacrifices and eat them yourselves. On the day I brought your ancestors out of Egypt, I didn't say a thing. I gave no instructions about entirely burned offerings or sacrifices. Rather, this is what I required of them. Obey me so that I may become your God and you may become my people. Follow the path I mark out for you so that it may go well with you. So the question I think we need to raise is, is Jeremiah right? Did God not speak to them about sacrifices and burnt offerings when they came out of Egypt? So I'm going to just run you through uh, the actual facts. Exodus 6, 2 to 8, God says to Moses he will re- that he will rescue the people from slavery, and will take them as his people, and will be their God. That's the first reference, the earliest reference to God saying that, that he will be their God and they will be his people. Exodus 9.1, uh, God says to Moses, this is what Yahweh says, let my people go so that they can serve me. Now serve me in ancient Near Eastern parlance meant usually to offer cultic sacrifices and do other cultic rituals. But it, this passage doesn't actually state that. And by the way, God says this, to, Mo- to Moses several times to say to Pharaoh, and you have the references there. Exodus 8.25, then Pharaoh called in Moses and Aaron and said, go offer sacrifices to your God within the land. He's the first one in the text that specifically mentions sacrifices. So he understands the word serve to mean sacrifices. Moses argues back that it would be an offense to the Egyptians and that they would stone him to death. In Exodus 10, 8, and 9, Pharaoh wants to know who is going with Moses. And Moses answers, young and old, sons and daughters, flocks and herds to observe Yahweh's festival. Exodus 12, 1 to 28, and it has the institution of Passover of the roasted lamb, communal meal that the people eat, and the blood pasted on the door to posts. In Exodus 12, 29 to 19, 1, that whole long section, God says nothing about making sacrifices. In Exodus 19, 3-6, God tells Moses, This is what you should say to the Israelites. You saw what I did to the Egyptians and how I lifted you up on eagles' wings and brought you to me. So now if you faithfully obey me and stay true to my covenant, you will be my most precious possession out of all the peoples, since the whole earth belongs to me. You will be a kingdom of priests 
and a holy nation. This is actually the formal statement that I think Jeremiah is referring to. Exodus 19.7-25 has preparation for meeting God at Sinai. And then Exodus 21 and 2 says, God, Then God spoke all these words, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now we come to the first allusion to burnt offerings and sacrifices. There's instructions in Exodus 20, 22 to 26 to build an altar for burnt offerings and sacrifices. And that's given only after the statement in chapter 19 about them being God's people. And it's only given also after the Ten Commandments. So my conclusion really is that Jeremiah is right. Essentially, that was not God's primary concern. And he never actually, so far as I can see, and I'll be happy to entertain any evidence to the contrary, but he never, so far as I know, directly commands sacrifices and offerings. So what about the blood? It's, it's obvious that God supports sacrifices and offerings in Leviticus. But what about the blood? The entire Bible speaks of blood both positively and negatively. With sacrifices, it is used positively in many places and negatively in a few places. It is used entirely negatively when applied to violence, human against human. A careful Bible study of the blood suggests that the blood is sacred. It contains life and represents life. It is also tied to the image of God in Genesis 9-6. Whose life does sacrificial blood represent? And this, you probably saw this on the handout that I suggested you read. If you, if you just do a comparative study of text to text, the life the sacrificial blood represents is obviously Jesus' life. And in John 1, the life was the light of men. That is, his life was the light of men. So if you make the equation, sacrificial blood equals life, that is Jesus' life, and that in turn represents the light of all. And light, of course, is a metaphor for truth. In Genesis 4, 10 and Hebrews 12, 24, the blood has a voice, cries out and speaks. This is not literal. This is metaphoric. So the symbolism is that blood has a message, and we need to ask what that message is. So if we move on through the Bible, the blood cleanses us from sin and sanctifies us, but so does the truth. And in 1 John, the blood is one of three witnesses that testify to the truth of Jesus. The other two are the spirit and the water. And this is one of the organizing principles of John's gospel. Uh, if you look at the first six chapters, John highlights the water, the spirit, and the blood. The words that Jesus speak to our spirit and life in John 6, 63, it seems that this is a turning point where John doesn't use the blood or the spirit and the life for a while. He finally turns to it again in Jesus' own words in John 14 to 16. What is even more interesting is that the Gospels highlight Jesus' blood in connection with his death just five times. Matthew 26, 27 to 29, wine symbolizes Jesus' blood poured out for forgiveness. 
Matthew 27, 4 to 8, Judas admits to shedding innocent blood. Matthew 27, 24 to 25, Pilate declares himself innocent of Jesus' blood. These are just generalizations of blood that refer to the actual taking of his life. But the only definitive places where Jesus' physical blood is mentioned is Luke twenty-two forty-four. Jesus sweats drops like great drops of blood. That's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And John nineteen thirty-four, Jesus' pierced side emits water and blood separated. These two are the bookends of Jesus' agony from Gethsemane through his death on the cross. There is nothing said in the Gospels about the blood of, from the crown of thorns on his head, the blood from the scourging, the blood from the nails in his hands and feet. Nothing is said about that. We depict that. We pick that up from just imagining what we're reading in the text. But nothing is said in these Gospels about that. There's two possible reasons for that. One is that you have the bookends, and so you have everything in the middle, and that's certainly permissible. But I, I like to think that the omission is deliberate in that what is really significant to the gospel writers is the evidence that Jesus died from a broken heart, not from an angry God, and that his death was the result of sin. So um, I guess I got ahead of myself. This is a slide that talks about these uh, different things that are left out. But um, I want you to notice the number three. Both the blood from his forehead and the blood from his side have traditionally represented the fact that he died from a broken heart as a result of sin and separation from the Father. So my take on this is the blood of Jesus signifies the truth that it is sin that leads to death, not God. It demonstrated that sin is deadly and that its, that its final and full consequences will be emotional agony that destroys sinners. If you want something to follow up on this, you might take a look at the Signs of the Times article in April 14, 1898, uh, where she depicts not the blood, but Jesus' emotional agony uh, as the cause of his death and as the cause of the wicked to die, uh, that they will die from emotional agony. So a synthesis and analysis involves assuming that God originally gave the sacrificial system. God intended it to show that it is sin that leads to death, not God. And that's almost a direct quote from Ellen White in Patriarchs and Prophets. She said that the first offerings given are that God had Adam uh, offer were intended to show that it is sin that leads to death. Uh, and the, the storyline, of course, is that Adam and Eve had believed the separance lie that they would not really die if they ate the fruit. <clears throat> this lie implied that they would distrust and disobey God without natural consequences. In that vacuum, the liar proposed that God would have to kill them. I think this happened later after the garden. And God looked like a liar. Besides, until the day that Adam and Eve ate the fruit, and even shortly after, no one had ever seen death before. They needed to see death to make the connection between sin and death. 
And it's important to note that in the sacrifices, and this is true in Leviticus, the sinner takes the life of the animal, indicating that the sins of the slayer caused its death. And, the, and then the Bible uh, in Hebrews teaches that this was needed for forgiveness to be effective. And the only way I can unpack this, and I know that in Hebrews it says under the law that forgiveness can't be had without sacrifices. And we understand that with Jesus' death, we're not under the law. So that raises that question. But the only way I can wrap my mind around why, forget, why death was needed for forgiveness to be effective is to suggest that if God the forgiver forgave us without demonstrating the deadly nature of sin, we would continue to sin until we destroyed ourselves. And without this demonstration, we might not even allow God to heal us from sin. So now we move to Babylonian offerings and sacrifices. Babylonian offerings and sacrifices had two purposes, to provide meals for the gods and for divination, the reading of signs or omens in the entrails of sheep, especially the exta, which is known as the practice of ecstasy. Blood did not have a function in these rituals. This uh, provides a bit of a problem, but I'm happy to discuss that with you later. Um, the overarching purpose for the first purpose was to keep the gods happy. A full, satisfied deity is less likely to get angry. Divination was needed because the gods placed their verdicts in these animals by means of signs. And by reading their omens in Assyrian or Babylonian, uh, the Babylonians could prevent or assuage divine anger through negotiation if the verdicts were negative. So once again, you have this, this assumption that the gods are potentially angry, and these are ways to either prevent that anger from taking place or to offset it once it has taken place. Appeasement in Babylonia. In Assyro-Babylonian, the entire cult centered on appeasement. The Babylonians were the gods' servants to provide food, clothing, housing, entertainment, and soothing elements, such as incense and incantations, to keep the gods mollified. My students wonder why incense. Um, of course, in some um, worship services today, even in Christianity, incense is used. And incense is used in Babylonian worship to keep the god kind of sleepy. Uh, incense has that effect of kind of a soporific effect where you, you feel mellow out, mellowed out and calm and maybe even a little sleepy. And uh, so that was the role incense played uh, before the god. In order to ascertain the temperature of the gods, diviners read omens to learn which days were propitious to do which things, to perceive whether the gods were planning against the person asking the question. If the omens were negative or obscure, the gods were angry with the person seeking his omens. Certain prayers contained appeals for appeasement. All illnesses, loss of social status, or the king's favor, financial loss, or other misfortunes often indicated that the gods were angry and needed appeasement. Now we come to appeasement in the Hebrew Bible. If the Bible as a whole endorsed appeasement of Yahweh's anger, one would expect the Psalms to bring this clearly to light. 
Instead, the closest we get to appeasement are pleased that God turn away his anger. This is in the Psalms. Though a number of prophets speak of God's anger, only Hebrew, only Ezekiel comes close to the concept of appeasement. And there he proclaims that the Lord will rest his anger by the punishments that fall on his people. These punishments are not directly brought about by God, but stem from his allowing enemy forces to take the southern kingdom captive to Assyria and Babylon. Though certain words may have been used to convey appeasement, uh, such as the sacrifices being a soothing odor or uh, imploring God, which the word imploring literally in its most pristine meaning meant to soften the face. But in the way the Bible uses, it means to plead with God. And if you see pleading with God as appeasement, then so be it. But you have to have behind that the concept that God is angry in the first place, which it isn't always tied to anger. Sometimes it is. The closest time it is is when uh, the Israelites worship the golden calf. God uh, says to Moses, step aside that I might get angry and destroy these people. Uh, Moses talks him out of it as in a superficial reading of the text. Uh, and then he comes back to God to implore him. So from Moses' perspective, it's impossible. It's possible that he's trying to appease God. But it seems odd that God would say, step aside that I might get angry. How could anybody stop God from getting angry if he wanted to get angry? Uh, it seems to me that rather he's testing Moses, which is something Ellen White suggests in Patriarchs and Prophets. So the Hebrew Bible has limited terms for appeasement. Depending on who translates the Bible, the terms that can mean appeasement are translated accordingly, or they are translated with meanings that do not necessarily mean appeasement. And I already mentioned the pleasing order, or a soothing order, which doesn't mean, and then uh, imploring God. The Hebrew construction to make atonement for sin would only mean to make appeasement if it appeared with God as the object instead of for sin, or if it had no object at all. Yitzchak Fader states that the Hebrew writers deliberately wrote it in the way that they did to convey atonement in a different sense than appeasement. Though he sees the blood as payment, I obviously see it as representing the truth that sin, not God, leads to death. Now we come to divine anger in Mesopotamia. I know this seems a little backward, but we're, we, I started with the sacrifices, and so it seemed that we needed to deal with them first. Anger served as a controlling factor, both with gods, whose potential anger brought them the offerings, ritual actions, provisions of housing, food, clothing, entertainment, and other manipulations, and with the kings, whose anger brought them increased political power, prestige, and control over vassals. The time periods, and this is, this is a most crucial factual evidence, the time periods that contain the most references to royal anger also contain the most references to divine anger. This correlation suggests that powerful kings came to use divine anger as a weapon to exercise control over their subjects. For example, those vassals who dared to break treaties with Assyria were considered not only disloyal to their overlord king, but also they sinned against the high gods. In another example, Ashurbanipal curses anyone who would remove his officers from their graves upon their death by the wrath of God and king. 
And on the other flip side of the coin, since the Mesopotamians saw the gods as like their human counterparts, the kings, they naturally ascribed anger to them because obviously um, Assyrian and Babylonian gods easily were angered. Divine anger in the Hebrew Bible now. Canonically speaking, that is in the order of the books, God is never angry once in the entire book of Genesis, the books of, book of beginnings. I'm not the only person who's seen that. I used to ask my students to search for any place in Genesis where it says that God gets angry, and I offered them extra credit points if they would find it. And nobody in my entire years of teaching has ever taken me up on it. I finally stopped asking because uh, I knew what kind of response I would get. Because Jesus points back to the beginning as speaking God's preferred will, I take this to mean that God's preferred will is that he not be seen as angry. And this has to do with my canonical critical reading of the Old Testament, that there are two voices, God's preferred will and God's will adapted to the will of the people. So I, because it never says that God is angry once in Genesis, the book of beginnings, which Jesus uses as paramount, I take this to mean that God's preferred will is that he doesn't want to be seen as angry. In the first canonical reference to divine anger, God gives Moses what he wants, someone else to go to Egypt. That is his brother Aaron. So God's initial anger is his giving people what they demand, even though it brings bad consequences. I think we all know that Aaron caused a lot of problems for Moses and for God. This voice of divine preference finds its echo in Paul's defining explanation of divine anger in Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28 as giving people up to the consequences of their choices. Now, what do we do about angry, an angry God and the prophets? Following the Babylonian increase of angry gods with angry kings, divine anger is most often expressed in the prophets who naturally prophesied during the monarchy. In Judges, God repeatedly manifests his anger at Israel as he sells them into the hands of other kings, that is, lets them go. Yet the prophets who speak of divine anger direct that anger against the powerful. This is the opposite of Assyro-Babylonian kings who use divine anger as political control. So in a sense, the prophets turn the divine anger back against the powerful who use divine anger as a means of control. And not surprisingly, the prophets who portray God as the angriest are Nahum, who prophesies against Assyria, and Ezekiel, who prophesies in Babylonia. So there's this Babylonian connection to divine anger in the most severe of prophets. So the question we could ask is whether God is an angry God. Is this an aspect of his character? Two of the words for anger in Akkadian, the Assyrian-Babylonian language, are agagu and azazu. The first refers to a passing emotion, while the second implies an inherent quality. Since both of these terms are applied to gods and kings, we may assume that anger is the attribute of Assyro-Babylonian gods, but isn't an attribute of Yahweh. Only Nahum seems to come close to saying so in his reference to Yahweh as the ball that is Lord of anger. 
It isn't clear whether this means that Yahweh controls anger or whether he is angry. One thing is clear, in God's own self-disclosure to Moses, he does not include anger as an attribute of his character. Indeed, quite the opposite, for his third quality is patience. Literally in Hebrew, slow to anger. Now we come to the Day of Atonement. The Hebrew Day of Atonement parallels the Babylonian Akitu festival because in both places, sacred places are cleansed. A temple in the Babylonian Akitu festival is cleansed, so the god has to be removed from the temple, and they cleanse the temple by taking the carcass of a sheep and washing it down uh, with the sheep's carcass. In the course of the Hebrew Day of Atonement, the blood is used to sprinkle on the altar uh, in front of the, uh, actually in front of the altar of incense, and then into, it's taken into the most holy place, actually, and sprinkled in front of the mercy seat. But in the Day of Atonement, no prayers were prayed except for people's silent prayers of repentance. During the Akitu festival, the high priest prayed long for Marduk to be appeased. So this silent prayer of the Day of Atonement is really a sharp contrast to the, the prayers of the high priest for Marduk's appeasement. Only one allusion to divine anger exists on the Day of Atonement, and it pertains to the goat for Azazel. According to H. Ben Yosef Tawil, a Jewish scholar who believes with medieval rabbinic commentators that Azazel is a desert demon, the term Azazel is a metathesized form of the Hebrew counterpart of the Babylonian Azazu and El, which means God. So Azazu is anger and El is God. That means fierce or angry God. I want to read this again because this is, this is extremely important and significant to the entire Hebrew Bible. Only one allusion to divine anger exists in the Day of Atonement. And it pertains to the goat for Azazel. According to H. Ben Yosef Tawil, who believes with medieval rabbinic commentators that Azazel is a desert demon, something that actually resonates with the Adventist belief that the Azazel goat is, represents Satan. The term Azazel is a metathesized form, that means two letters are switched, of the Hebrew counterpart of the Babylonian Azazu and El, that means fierce or angry God. So at the end of the Day of Atonement, the real angry God, the one who has anger as a characteristic or an attribute, is a demon that we know as Satan. Babylonian substitution. King Ur dies as a penalty for instigating Tiamat's rebellion, and out of his death comes human substitutionary life. In the Babylonian model, penal execution gives life to the substitute. Divine and royal images acted as doubles or substitutes of the gods so that they could exercise their power wherever their images were stationed. A figurine, a legal substitute, Dinanu, related to Dinu, which means judgment, healed the sick when it was placed on a patient then thrown away or burnt. So it was placed on the patient in order to absorb the sickness, and then it substituted for the patient's patient because it, it was viewed that this patient was sick because the gods were angry and possibly wanted that patient dead so that they would 
It would take this and and uh, absorb the illness, and then that's the dinanu was the substitute that bore the penalty of that sickness when it was thrown away or burnt. Sometimes it was given to the dogs. Ishtar could not leave the netherworld without a substitute to take her place. And then there was the execution of the Sharpuki, the substitute king that legally gave the gods what the omens said they wanted. And I believe I have a slide uh, strictly on that. When the omens agreed that the gods were angry with the king and planned to have him killed, a substitute king, a commoner, would be installed as king for a specific number of days. The real king would leave the throne and go somewhere else. At the end of the days, the Babylonians reinstalled the real king and ex executed the substitute king and his wife. I should really say the Assyrians reinstalled the real king. We have these from Assyrian texts because uh, we don't have as many texts from the Babylonians. But we do know that the Babylonians used the substitute king, king ritual because when Alexander the Great reached Babylon, entered the city, and took his place as king, uh, they read the omens and discovered that the gods were angry with this Greek king and were going to kill him. And so they asked Alexander to please let them do the substitute king ritual for him because they liked Alexander. They were ready to have him as their king. I, I don't remember the outcome of that. It isn't clear to me that he actually allowed them to go ahead, but I do know that they asked. This is practiced in Assyria because we have correspondence about it, and I just said what the next paragraph reads. The ritual only works in the legal sense. The omens gave the verdict that the king would die, and, quote, the king died. This kind of thing was done throughout the ancient Near East. It was a way of manipulating words in a legal sense to uh, give the equivalent. Now we come to biblical substitution. Well, Akkadian has three or four nouns for substitute. Hebrew has none, just loose construction. In the sacrificial system, the sinner normally did the slaying of the animal, not the priest, thus owning their culpability and their guilt for the death of the innocent animal. Thus, any substitution element of that denies that it's in any way a substitute that would help God to forgive or whatever. Um, it's, it has, it's something that's supposed to teach them that sin leads to death. A suffering servant is not a perfect parallel of the Syro-Babylonian substitute king because the substitute king bears the omens of the real king, while the suffering servant bears the sins of the people. Through his knowledge, not through a legal means, the suffering servant will make many righteous and will bear their iniquities. The point of the binding of Isaac is, Father, do not lay your hand upon your son, do not do anything to him. When Abraham offers the ram in place of, which is actually an indication of substitution, his son Isaac, his role changes from that of the father to the sinner who offers the animal. Typologically, substitution is revelatory because it reveals the truth about sin. Particularly in the Abraham-Isaac story, it becomes very clear. Father, do not lay your hand upon the son. Do not do anything to him. This is applied to God typologically. 
God the Father is not going to lay his hand on his son, and he's not going to do anything to him. So the substitution here is revelatory rather than legal or penal. Now we're going to change a little bit from sacrifices and offerings to the Sabbath because the Sabbath was such an important part of Israelite worship. The Assyrians and Babylonians seem to have a seven-day weekly cycle that did not conform to the lunar calendar, yet this only had to do with the occult, not with the secular life. The Assyrians, and likely the Babylonians, believed in propitious and unpropitious days, days when the gods were favorably disposed and days when they weren't. On propitious days, certain things were appropriate to do, while on unpropitious propitious days, certain things were taboo. A set of specific days in the lunar month, 7th, 14th, 19th, 21st, and 28th, you notice that there are seven days apart except for the 19th. These days were known as evil days, that is, ill-fated days on which people had to refrain from doing evil things. Then there's another term, Shapatu. This term uh, possibly is related to Shabbat, and uh, some scholars think it is. There's only one scholar I know that doesn't think it's related, and that's an Adventist scholar who didn't give any evidence to support his case. The term Shapatu uh, refers to the 15th day of the lunar month in which, as now, the sun, Shamash, and the moon, Sin, stood in opposition, visible in the same sky. These are gods, Shamash and Sin. Since these were both viewed as gods of justice, the sun to expose the evil deeds on the day, in the day and the moon to expose evil deeds at night, this meant that they did, not, they did their task to the best they're the best on the 14th day of the month when they first appeared together in the same sky. You understand that this is true of astronomy, that there's a, that um, around the 15th day of the month, the sun and the moon can be seen uh, in the sky together, usually one at one end and the other at the other end of the sky. And that's called in opposition. When they're shown, when they appear in the sky close together, usually around the first of the month, they're shown in conjunction. But uh, so there was an omen. I'm, I'm going to start that paragraph again because I think we got a little sidetracked. Since these were both viewed as gods of justice, the sun to expose evil deeds in the day and the moon to expose evil deeds at night, this meant that they did their tasks the best on the 14th day of the month when they first appeared together in the same sky. Yet an omen suggests that if they appeared together on the 15th day of the month, enemy forces would attack the city. Perhaps this is why one text designates Shapatu as the day of the resting of the heart, and that's a term that means appeasement. So Shapatu was apparently seen as a day when the gods were potentially angry, particularly Shamash and Sin, and which that was a day you wanted to make sure you appeased them. I want to look at this concept of rest and appeasement in Enuma Elish, because Enuma Elish, I believe, lay in the mind, back in the back of the mind of the writer of Genesis 1, 1, 2, uh, 1, 2, 2, 3. These both contain, these both, both of these texts contain creation stories, and they create, contain uh, an emphasis on rest or cessation. In Genesis, it's more cessation 
In Enuma Elish, it's more about rest. But in Exodus 20, there's also rest. God rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had made. And therefore, God sanctified the seventh day and made it holy as a reason for why we keep it. So a literary motif of Enuma Elish is that of rest with overtones of appeasement. The key words have both meaning. So that, and and this it has to do with the form of the word to rest. If it's in the what is called the esh form, which is the causative form, it means to appease, and that is the form is used regularly in the text, with the exception of one place. Um, it can still mean to rest in the causative form, but its primary meaning seems to be to make to be appeased to, to appease something. So here's the way this works. Noisy gods make the father god Apsu sick due to no rest or sleep. And the words I've underlined are this word. It's Pashaku in Akkadian. Apsu decides to kill the god so that he can rest and sleep. Offspring Ea finds out and gains tranquility after killing Apsu. Mother god Tiamat and her gods become angry and do not rest. <clears throat> the word rest there is a different word. Gods try to appease Tiamat with their words without success. Anshar commands Marduk to appease Tiamat with his pure spell. Marduk slays her and then rests and surveys her corpse. Marduk executes a god to create humans so that the gods might rest. The gods build Babylon for Marduk as a place of rest for the gods. So you can see how <clears throat> this concept of rest slash appeasement occurs throughout the text. And you can, you can uh, translate it either way, in a sense. Because if you can't sleep, you get angry, and, and then you need appeasement. But you also need rest. So if you compare Sabbath with Enuma Elish, in Genesis 2, 1 to 3, the creation of this world ends when God ceases his work of creation. Because he ceases creating on the seventh day, he sets that day apart as sacred. The word for work can also mean message. Although in most contexts, the two meanings do not converge. Here in Genesis 2, they seem to. The message of the Sabbath is about ceasing to work, a creation without angry gods exercising violence to gain rest or appeasement. In Exodus 28 to 11, God enjoins our keeping the Sabbath because in it he rested on the seventh day. This rest has no overtones of appeasement because the context doesn't imply it. The keeping of the seventh day is a monument in time, therefore, to a nonviolent God who does not require violence, appeasement, or penal substitution to give life. I want to spend a little bit of time uh, on Babylonian religion and politics. This is a little bit still on topic, but it's a link to next week or next time we meet when I will deal with <clears throat> Jesus and Babylon. Some of the things you learn today are going to be very helpful when we talk about the Babylonian influences that led to Jesus' crucifixion. Neither Assyria nor Babylonia was ever a theocracy, rather, politics and religion existed in a kind of married partnership. Early in Sumer, such a partnership was actually ritualized in what is called the sacred marriage between the king 
and the goddess Inanna. One scholar believes, however, that this was a sexual union, not a marriage. Religion and politics united in Babylonia in many ways. Kings used divination to make plans in harmony with the divine will. Kings also had the different scholars, exorcists, diviners, lamentation, appeasement priests, astrologers, and medical practitioners in their secret inner circle. Kings also used divine anger as a means of keeping subjects and especially vassals in line. Yet kings were also subject to divine anger as well. And one of the places I didn't bring out was in the Kitu festival. One of the rituals was that the high priest would take the king by the ear, drag him in before Marduk and make him kneel. And the king had to say to Marduk that he had uh, been good to the Babylonians, that he had not treated them unjustly during the year, etc., etc. The, the high priest would strike him on the cheek, and if tears flowed, he, the god was happy with him, Marduk was pleased, and was not angry with him. But if tears did not flow, uh, Marduk was angry with the king, and enemy forces would come in the next year and uh, destroy him. Now we come to what this all means in light of Revelation. I will first state my assumptions. Babylon, the opposite of the New Jerusalem in Revelation, represents a religious entity, an apostate one. That's because it is opposite of the New Jerusalem, which represents the bride of Christ, or the Lamb, uh, which represents God's people. In the three angels' messages, the wine of the wrath of Babylon's fornication is deliberately contrasted with the wine of the wrath of God that is unmixed. Actual Babylonian religious rituals, ideological perceptions, and practices lie behind the text of Revelation 14 to 18. This is what I've come to conclude because of the evidence in the text. Uh, there's just so many places that I, I, I hear or read and think, that's so Babylonian. So I believe that Revelation speaks Babylonian to those in Babylon. And there's a historic reason to that for that. To John, Babylon was old Jerusalem. The beast was Rome. And the reason this is so important is that Babylon gave to Judaism many of its practices and beliefs. And uh, there's a scholar named Mar Margaret Barker who maintains that it was the Babylonian Jews, the Jews who came from Babylon and maintained the Babylonian kind of viewpoints that were the ones that John singled out as the Jews in his gospel uh, and, and were the ones who saw to it that Jesus was put to death. Now we're going to break down and exegete uh, the second angel's message. Babylon, Babylon has fallen. Has fallen that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So fornication. I already mentioned that the Sumerian uh, forerunner of the sacred marriage, which really was not a marriage but an act of fornication. It's, it's possible that that's in mind because Sumerian uh, practices were known clear down into later Babylonian times. It's also possible that we can identify this as something else. 
uh, one thing is true, that Israel's worship of idols or false gods in the Old Testament were portrayed as fornication with false gods. But in Revelation 18.3, Babylon fornicates with kings. And since this is the fornication of the wrath of Babylon, I should say the wrath of the fornication of Babylon, it would seem to me that this depicts two things. One, that Babylonians believed that the gods were angry because kings were angry. This is the fornication of, of, this is a core belief that involved the fornication of Babylon with kings. So as shown above at various periods in Assyria and Babylonian, kings used anger as a means of control. Gods were perceived also to use anger to get their way. That's because they depicted the gods like kings. Wine, less plentiful and thus given mostly to the Babylonian gods in libations. A New Testament symbol for the blood of Jesus is also true. And it also alludes to Revelation 18, 24. In Babylon was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slaughtered in the earth. So one could suggest that this is a code. And I'm not sure what, what the next... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to give you that code. I don't think I have it actually explicitly stated. But the wine is the bloodshed due to angry gods uh, on the basis of angry kings. It is that melding of religion and the state to bring about bloodshed and tyranny over people. And it therefore has a religious core. Uh, I believe that, it's, that the wrath of gods in Babylon and the wrath of kings are the mo clearest, uh, most intimate coalescence that led to the union of church and state, or I should say religion and state. By adopting a view of the gods that resembled earthly power-hungry kings, Babylon came to view them as angry. Just as their powerful rulers were angry, this led to Babylonians' attempts to soothe and placate the gods through incantations, food and drink offerings, including wine as perhaps the Joyce's gift, and various rituals, including the substitute king ritual. Revelation credits this Babylonian religious trajectory with the shedding of prophets, prophetic and holy blood, including the blood of Jesus, even all blood shed on the earth. In the annals of history, Babylonian influence has indeed made all drink, nations drink of the wine of the blood, that is the blood of the wrath of her fornication with kings, because that ideology has stayed with Western culture to this day. So there I give you the formula in a little different way. Now we come to the wine of God's wrath. They will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured unmixed into the cup of his anger, and they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image and for anyone who receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith of Jesus. Now, <clears throat> there is one Greek word for wine, but two Hebrew words for wine. 
and those two Hebrew words are both translated, when translated into Greek, they're both translated by winos. Even though the word that is most directly related to winos in Hebrew is yayin. You can see some what of a similarity there. Wine is not used as a libation in Hebrew worship. Uh, tiros, I, I should say tirosh, sweet wine, what God gave to the priests. But wine, yayin, is referenced in Deuteronomy as what false gods drank. God's wrath poured unmixed is undiluted. Unmixed means undiluted. Uh, in, in John's day, uh, they often diluted wine with water, making it uh, weaker and being able to get more wine for their money or less wine for the money, so that they made more money. And thus, the wine was completely pure. Unmixed means it's pure and not watered down. If this is the opposite of Babylon's fornication with kings, it means that God's wrath cannot be appeased, not even by Jesus' death, because sin leads to results, and when we choose sin, we choose those results. And it's only if we choose Jesus' way and turn away from sin that we choose a different route uh, so that we don't suffer God's wrath. And we can discuss that a little bit more, and I'll be glad to explain it further. Into the cup of his anger is a reference to the cup that Jesus drank. An interesting thing is, if we had time, I would take you through Revelation 16 and show you that the plagues that are poured out are point by point in the, in the like order of everything that Jesus suffered from his trial uh, to his death. So the sores uh, that are poured out on, on human beings uh, represent his scourging. Uh, the earthquake is in the right place. Uh, the sun uh, being so hot that Jesus is thirsty uh, is in the right place. All these are really representatives of what Jesus went through in dying for us. So into the cup of his anger to me represents what Jesus experienced in terms of the wrath of God, which is simply he was given up. Then face-to-face, uh, -face, or facing the holy angels, or face-to-face, -face, facing the Lamb. This means that they are tortured to me by the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. That, that seeing God face-to-face -face is torture. And, and you think of Jesus saying to Moses, no one can see my face and live. And, and in ancient Near Eastern understanding, that is totally incomprehensible. It's totally backwards because if you came in before the king, for example, and he uh, looked at you with his face, you would be in his favor. You would not die. But if he turned his face away from you, you would die. So this is opposite. God's face is his graciousness and his love. And that is what is destructive to those who are out of harmony with it. And so uh, they are tortured by the face-to-face -face of the holy angels and face-to-face -face with the Lamb. And they are tormented with fire and sulfur. I, I only can point to you to Sodom. 
in Genesis 19.24, uh, also Ezekiel 14.14-18. 14, uh, there's an interesting statement in the texts of Babylonia. A new king of the gods fated the second of the seven warriors like fire scorch burn like flame. Fire, he then commands these gods to go to the side of Era, the most significant warrior god, sulfur, is used in Babylonia to purify possessed people of ghosts. It, it seems to me that this is natural consequences and that it's talking in Babylonian language to Babylonian people. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever is related to ancient and eastern cities destroyed by fire. Again, I see this as natural consequences. No rest, day or night, is a very Babylonian statement. For example, in Enuma Elish, Apsu says to Tiamat, by light I am not calmed or soothed, by night I have no sleep. Uh, Tiamat was stirred up day and night. Inability to sleep is, of course, a major motif, as we noted. The word to soothe also means to pacify and so on. Now we come to the last portion of the three angels' messages, which to me are very definitive. And this to me explains God's anger more than anything else. The patience of the saints, which is in Hebrew, slow to anger, is the opposite of anger as an intrinsic characteristic. If God is asking the saints to be patient or saying, here are the patience of the saints, he is not angry or he would allow us to be angry. Who keep the commandments? Jesus made it very clear that you don't really keep the commandments until you love your enemies. For if you love those who love you, do not even the tax collectors do the same. And of course, this is my commandment, Jesus says, that you love one another as I have loved you. The Sabbath embodies this. And finally, hold fast to trust in Jesus, the faith of Jesus, Atonement, real atonement, brings us back to trust in God. Here are my conclusions. Mesopotamian substitution acts as a thread tying the different aspects of Syro-Babylonian economic life, politics, the royal palace, the legal court, and the temple together. Divine anger behaves as a central motive behind almost every action of these domains. These two elements form some of the roots of the artificiality of relationships in ancient Mesopotamia. By substitution, one could say, give the gods what they wanted. By appeasement, one can manipulate their emotions. As we will see in opposition to Jesus, these two elements will serve as a core of his rejection and crucifixion. <laughs>